Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Tactical Breakdown, the podcast for instructors and trainers in the fields of law enforcement, military, security, and emergency response have a chance to share their thoughts and ideas and hear from some of the best subject matter experts in the world. My guest today is Leslie Hadfield. Leslie is an instructor at the Atlantic Police Academy and specializes in communication and mental health crisis de-escalation. The purpose of today's podcast is to shed some light on dealing with situations that involve persons with special needs. This is a topic that hits very close to home for me, and I'm going to speak to it in the podcast. Um, I know it's a very touchy subject. I appreciate you listening and supporting the podcast. I hope you get some type of actionable information from it. We're going to have a lot of resources that are going to be linked to the show notes page for everybody. And if you have any questions, this is one of those shows that I actively encourage you to reach out to me directly at thebreakdown.ca or to reach out to Leslie and we will answer any questions that you guys have on any of the topics that we cover today. So let's bring Leslie on and get ready for the breakdown. All right, Leslie, thank you for joining us today on the Tactical Breakdown podcast. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. I know we've kind of talked offline a little bit, um, and I'm glad that we can get you on a call. So I've already given you a brief intro, and but why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Um, I'm an instructor at the Atlantic Police Academy in Summerside, PEI, and I've been here for about 10 years now teaching mental health interactions with the police and disabilities and how to interact appropriately. How long have you been focused on the police training portion? I mean, I know you have pretty extensive background uh, in the academic side um, when it comes to psychology and things like that. What kind of brought you into the, the police training and the law enforcement community? Actually, I've only been there for about 10, I should say only, I've been there about 10 years. Uh, I was uh, actually headhunted to come to the academy because of my background. They were looking for somebody who specialized in communications and social sciences that could instruct right across the board officers from policing, sheriffs, corrections, conservation, and, and fire in, in mental health aspects and especially the officers with de-escalation. It came very timely uh, with the Hyde inquiry where it was mandated that all officers need to have mental health training. And at the time, there was very, very little out there. Yeah, um, real quick, while you while you brought it up, I'm sure there's a lot of people on this uh, podcast right now that are listening that aren't necessarily familiar with the Hyde inquiry. Can you give us just a quick Coles Notes brief overview so that kind of everyone's on the same page? Uh, with, with the Hyde Inquiry, it was uh, one of the, the most prominent inquiries for officer interactions with someone with mental health. It was Howard Hyde, who was taken into custody, and he was tasered um, in custody and later died. And it was determined it wasn't so much the tasering, but that he had suffered from excited delirium. It was numerous rounds he was tasered that inevitably uh, led to his death, but the the issue was the officers weren't um, prepared or trained how to interact with some of mental health issues and how to identify that perhaps the interactions could have gone differently. All they had to use was force. That's all they were actually trained in. When this inquiry came out and the law enforcement community as a whole said, okay, we need to start putting focus on our officers getting this mental health training um, and at the very least 
giving them the knowledge and the information as to these are the type of things that you are going to be encountering and have been encountering in the field. So my understanding is at the Atlantic Police Academy, you are kind of positioned where you have your kind of hands in all the different things, whether it be uh, recruit academy training or in-service training for current law enforcement officers. What types of programs do you specifically um, or have you specifically developed at the Atlantic Police Academy for this topic? All the communication uh, courses. Uh, it's not that I've developed them. I've used a broad uh, array of curriculums from MANS training, which is a curriculum developed uh, internationally and, and it's used in schools, it's used in correctional facilities. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and it is about de-escalation. It's about perspective taking. It's about uh, using empathy and understanding and crisis cycle and how we respond. And the foundation is under Maslow that we don't have behaviors just randomly. We use behaviors to get what we want or what we need. That's a lot of the premise that I teach from, that people don't have random behaviors. It The behavior is need fulfilling for some reason. When you and I first talked, we had discussed what officers are receiving now for training when it comes to de-escalation tactics and use of force, and specifically in the realm of the officer presence to communication aspect, those moments uh, when they initially show up and interact with those subjects. So before we get into some of the other things that we're going to talk about when dealing with people with special needs and those types of things, as an officer, as a new officer, as a senior officer, if I'm responding to a call, what are some tools or how can I assess a subject during that initial interaction phase? Before you can even present yourself in a situation, you have to check out your own mindset, your own attitudes. That's played some havoc with uh, interactions. If we have biases to people with mental health issues, before we even step into that incident, it's going to reflect on the way that we interact. If we think that all people have with mental illness are violent, it's going to influence the way we interact with everybody. Um, taking the time is so important. So taking your time for yourself to assess yourself, to see, is your heart racing? Are you stressed? We know that when we're stressed, we don't make real great decisions um, for many, many reasons. But our, our reasoning and our decision-making skills go decrease tremendously the, the higher the stress levels are. So if we have a, a fear-based response to somebody with that perhaps is psychotic, then our reasoning skills decrease, which is why training is so very important. Yeah, that's actually, you know, right when you said that, it brings me back to um, an article that I had read based off of um, the Force Science Institute founder, uh, Dr. Bill Lewinsky, who mm -hmm. basically stated that there was kind of five five points to de-escalation tactics. And one of those specifically was that de-escalation begins with you. And if, Absolutely. And if you don't, if you go into the situation um, and you're not able to control your own or control yourself, um, that it's, you know, it's not going to go the way you want. Um, he talks about things like, you know, the tactical breathing, remaining calm, lowering your heart rate, and a little bit about stress inoculation training from the academy level or from your in-service to, to make sure that you're prepared when you, before you go out into the field. Absolutely. Uh, if we can, we're, truly we're the 
we're the only people we can control. We can't control anybody else. We can set the foundation or the environment so that somebody de-escalates. And that in itself is huge, that we don't, we can't tell someone to de-escalate or calm down. We can help them feel emotionally safe so that they do calm down. And there's a variety of things that we as officers can do without telling somebody or demanding or shouting and yelling at somebody to, to calm down. So if I'm going into a situation and I haven't mentally prepared myself, I'm kind of setting myself up to fail, but I, that's, it's kind of a tough pill to swallow for most people. Cause you're like a lot of times, um, if someone's responding to a call, you're like, well, I don't know what my mindset's going to be like when I jump in there, right? It's kind of spur of the moment. Um, you know, if you're, if you're going to a call and, and you're, driving at a high rate of speed and maybe something happens and you almost get into an, uh, a vehicle collision and then two minutes later you're jumping out and dealing with a subject who is you know has escalated to a point past where you are you feel comfortable in dealing with them what are some steps that you can take initially right when you show up on scene to to kind of bring yourself back to level so that you're better prepared to deal with that person even on the way to the situation, if you can do an assessment uh, of, of have they had any other previous calls to that address? Has the name, when they run, the, run their names, finding out is there any history whatsoever? That doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be a repeat of the behavior because a lot of times an uh, individual will react just to the officer, the way that they'll mirror the officer's behavior. So if an officer shows up and is having their own hands flailing, if they're grimacing on their face as opposed to relaxed and showing relaxed body language, then that the, the people that they're going to do that with will mirror that back. And actually, it's, I'm, I'm thinking about kids. If you're putting your child to bed, are you going to scream and yell and jump on the bed, hoot and holler? Well, of course you're not because the child is not going to calm down or relax or get ready to sleep. So in the same way when we're dealing with any human being or any other individual, we want to mimic the behavior that we want them to, to, to behave for us. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and th this, and that's something that's not just applicable to, uh, you know, an on duty situation, but I have a feeling that's applicable to pretty much anything that we do in our day to day lives, right? If you're interacting with somebody, whether it be a, you know, it could be, you could be interacting with your friend or a loved one. Um, if you guys are in the middle of an argument, you, you can apply those things to, to yourself, um, to deescalate that situation as well. So I think that's a, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I just, you know, by, and one of the biggest things when it comes to interactions is that when we are speaking with somebody or interacting verbally, we don't listen to what they're saying. We listen to respond. And when we don't listen to somebody, we're not hearing what they're saying, what the issues are, so we can't, as an officer, deal effectively with what their experience is. So one of the first steps is to affirm what their experience is. Use some empathy, trying to understand the emotion and the facts that are involved and why they're behaving that way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and it, it kind of brings me into our next point where uh, when you and I first talked, we discussed when you get a call to deal with somebody who's suspected as like an intoxicated person, for example, going into that situation and not automatically assuming that you're going to be dealing with somebody who's intoxicated or drunk and they're going to be an asshole to you, but 
going into that with an open mind and saying, listen, there's a lot of things physiologically and mentally that could appear to be intoxication, but aren't. Um, for example, the one that we had talked about was if somebody is in, you know, some type of diabetic distress and they have low blood sugars, um, for the people, for everybody listening here who's dealt with that type of person before, whether it be, you know, a family member, a friend, or a subject out on a call, it, it mimics almost exactly somebody who has had too much to drink. And if you go into that call without taking that medical uh, consideration, you know, you're doing a detriment not only to yourself, but to that individual because they could potentially lose their life because you went in there with a predisposed opinion about what, what was happening. Absolutely. Or a stroke. There was a case in Toronto um, a couple of years ago that, that there was inquiry on, and it was based on the fact the officers didn't consider that there was a medical emergency. Uh, the, the, unfortunately, the, the lady did die. Uh, she had had a stroke and was calling out for help. But because officers felt that she was intoxicated, you know, they didn't respond effectively, which is, is not uncommon. When um, So par- part of our training is always think outside the proverbial box. Consider that there might be something else going on. Things are not always as, as the perception takes it. It may, be, it may be somebody who has diabetes. And type 1, we know, is becoming epidemic. So it's a large number of people that have type 1 diabetes. And type 2 also um, exhibits exactly the same um, behaviors if somebody is going low. And newly diagnosed people have difficulty sometimes controlling their blood sugars. So it wouldn't be unusual. Even motor vehicle accidents, uh, officers assume the person is drunk if they're in an accident. It may not be intoxication at all, which just complicates things, especially now that pot is legal in Canada and people are are smoking or or ingesting uh, THC in, in different forms. It just complicates the uh, the sobriety for sure. That's a great point. And one of the things too that we had talked about and I think kind of cycles real nicely from that is that we had talked about when an officer shows up um, to a situation and the different types of people that they could be interacting with. And, and the one that kind of stuck out to, to, to me when you were talking about it was persons with autism or special needs um, or with some type of mental disability. And that struck home for me because as I had told you before, um, my younger brother is special needs. He's a mid-functioning, requires 24-hour care. But I've grown up my whole life in that community, getting to know people with special needs, definitely a lot of autistic children um, as they've developed now through puberty and into adulthood. And a lot of people don't have that opportunity that I did. So sometimes um, if someone's responding to a call and it's their first time dealing um, with somebody who's either on the spectrum or with a mental, uh, mental disability of sorts, what are some things that officers have to keep in mind when interacting with those types of people? I think that's awesome points. It's um, that people are not often exposed. When we see autism or when we think about it, we think about kids. We don't think about adults. These kids are growing up. Sometimes their deficits have been addressed and they can overcome some of the issues. But a lot of times, especially with Asperger's, which is very, very high functioning autism, the deficits are, are never overcome. So there's problems with communication, taking things literally, um, saying, you know, which, which hand is, show me your right hand. And the person may say, which one is wrong? Um, 
so are, are repeating things over and over again uh, are very common types of behaviors with someone with autism and it can be it can be difficult for officers trying to deal with somebody it takes a lot of patience and time um, but recognizing some of the typical types of behaviors is very important as well uh, runners the many people with autism run run away with case in Cape Breton a couple of years ago uh, a young fellow that that ran and James Delory and unfortunately he was found two days after he left and he, and he ended up uh, dying um, from from the extreme cold it was in December so there there's been many cases about that in Newfoundland in 2009 there was a case where officers picked up somebody that had Asperger's syndrome um, assumed he was drunk and put him in jail for the night and did not give him a call home uh, he was nonverbal, so it led to more issues. Whether the officers interpreted that as non-compliance, um, it leads to all different types of, of uh, problems. Definitely for the agency that the officers are working for, for the family members, and of course the individual themselves. Yeah, there's it. One of the things that always jumped out to me, um, and it's, I don't want to say it's it's ignorance on the part of of the officer or the person dealing with these um, with these persons, but it always stood out to me that people think that mental illness um, and people with special needs, because there's such a stigma attached to it, that it's unless they look like somebody with uh, maybe like a chromosomal disease, like something like Down syndrome, they're like, okay, that person's special needs, I get it. But they don't understand that the vast majority of people that have a mental illness or have something going on that you're unaware of, they look exactly like you and I. There's there's Absolutely. no physiological difference. And so there has to be some sensitivity to that. Is that something that you've experienced um, when you're going through this with the officers in training? Absolutely. And that's that's part of the the training is to try to when through communication, through questioning, determine um, their language skills. Are they able to express themselves effectively? Are they able to receive the messages? So that's their communication. If they're hearing and able to respond, then you know the communication is complete. If they're hearing and they're not responding, can they express to you that they're actually hearing? So it's taking the receptive and the expressive language, interpreting that, um, and knowing it, just being aware that something is is obviously not not 100% on par, whether it's autism, whether it's person is repeating themselves or misusing pronouns like I or we sometimes, which can happen in autism. Um, if there's problems with sound stimulation or, uh, you know, touch, you know, people with autism, they can be on a huge spectrum where there's a general, a gentle touch may cause physical pain. Um, and if they get stressed, then they may experience that and try to stem. So flapping their arms or perhaps banging their heads, trying to get, you know, reduce the this extra stimulation in the whole neurological system. That's important. And the other thing is, when dealing with autism in particular, there are some uh, medical conditions that go along, that coexist with autism, heart problems, asthma, um, they're their trunk muscles are underdeveloped often, so considering if you had to do um, a takedown of any type um, or our handcuff, that positional asphyxia is quite possible with somebody who have, has autism. A gastrointestinal upset is common 
with, and, and that may be Crohn's or colitis with with autism. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of difficulties, and they, they often have epilepsy because it is a neurological spectrum disorder as well. So that increase or that heightened sense of um, stimulation can react in many different ways with, with people with autism. And the stats are staggering. It's one in 57 people now are diagnosed on the spectrum of autism. It's it's mind-blowing almost when you look at it. You and I just talked before we went live here about how you could almost say that everybody, if you sat down with a specialist, they could probably place you somewhere on the spectrum. And that's, you know, that's something that just most people don't understand. You touched on two things there. And one of them was triggers. Can you maybe just delve a little bit more into the triggering aspect um, for people with special needs and kind of explain how that can present or, or what happens when an officer is interacting with somebody? Sure. Um, and again, it could be for, for any individual, anywhere on the spectrum, these triggers or the, stimula- the stimulants um, are different. If somebody has auditory processing issues, it may be sound that could be a trigger, certain sounds. It may be the flickering of lights if they have visual sensation um, difficulties. It may be touch, so um, having a wool blanket over them may escalate them. When the body is escalated, when the neurological system is extended too far and the body basically goes into overload and needs to decompress, the person or the individual does certain behaviors to do that to the body. So... If the neurological system is overstimulated, they may need deep pressure. So they may throw themselves on the ground or rock, much like we would do with babies when they're little and when they're crying. We try to comfort them. So we swaddle them and hold them tight and rock them. Our bodies know what they need, and individuals learn to adapt and accommodate for the most part. So if uh, if rocking helps them calm down, then that's what their body will tell them innately to do. If if their head is throbbing, some may, may throw their head against the wall or bang their head. Every individual is different, and with different types of stimulation, whether it's tactile, whether it's auditory or visual, they learn how to accommodate or how to basically protect themselves and uh, avoid that meltdown. And sometimes the stimulation is... is they go into complete overload, and they can interact. They go deep within themselves, and it's like a self-protective cocoon until their neurology calms down. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of times um, when they do get into that overload state, it, in my experience anyway, it sometimes takes either their parent or a relative that's very close with them um, to help bring them back to that homeostasis because they need that that familiarity. And I find that familiarity is a big thing, um, especially when you're talking about stimuluses and these triggers and then having to recognize that, okay, something I've done here has, has triggered them or, you know, like you said, maybe it has something to do with pain tolerances. Sometimes people have very high pain tolerances. Uh, my brother, for example, is able to and has in the past, you know, taken a kitchen knife, sliced his forearm down to the bone and looks at you and says, look what I did. And nothing registers, right? Sometimes people have that oversensitivity, whereas like you said, even something as simple as putting a jacket or a blanket or even touching their skin can cause that overload of uh, neurons firing and then they go into that state. Absolutely. And I guess that's what's um, important to recognize that when agencies 
have developed autism registries that it's not so much to keep tabs on people with autism and have a, a criminal type of record, it's to assist the officers in interaction. We know that uh, they have a much higher interaction ratio with police and the general population, seven times higher actually. So having some information and having an autism registry helps prepare the officers on how to do the de-escalation and kind of triggers for each individual. So if there happened to be in, um, car accidents in MBA or an individual involved and, and you knew the name, we could run the name and find out what those triggers are and that would help in the whole um, interaction. Is that something that you think is going to be rolled out across Canada and the U.S. where it comes to having those databases, not unlike a, not unlike a, a mental health database where it's basically information on, here, you know, this is somebody who's been identified as being on the spectrum or having these special needs, whether it be, you know, autistic or even a physical disability, perhaps things like I know already, you know, if we have, we have prompts and flags, if somebody is HIV positive or have, has hepatitis C or some bloodborne infection or all these different types of things, this, does this fall into that same type of system or is this something completely separate? Typically it's, um, well, it's similar, but it's separate. The autism registries are done separately, and one of the biggest issues is the families of people with autism or the families of those with mental illness, and I understand this completely. Um, it's not like it's a criminal record, and some people just don't want to have their names associated to police records. There's, there's still a huge stigma with that as well, even though it may be beneficial to the individuals. The other thing that uh, might be problematic is the fact that with HIV, it's either yes, they're someone's positive or no, they're not. With autism and on, with people on the spectrum or people with mental health issues, a lot of the behaviors are, they're never consistent. So you can have somebody perhaps with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, and with for one officer, they may react one way. With a different officer, they would respond a different way. Um, and the way that they're deemed as well, if it is, um, if the officer says, um, deems them violent, you know, exactly what does that look like? So um, officers are, you know, they see a report that the individual has been violent. They may go in with a perception that, oh, you know, this person is violent. Let's get prepared for violence. And when you go into a situation with mindset, and you should always have in the back of your mind, it's always, always possible for officer safety. But when you go in thinking that that's the way it's going to roll out, then that's often how we respond. That creates a problem with just the mindset preparing. You brought up uh, people with other disorders, things like um, schizophrenia, bipolar. And it's funny, actually, I want to put this in here real quick, just because it it drives me nuts every single time. A lot of people misinterpret bipolar for multiple personality disorder. And I just want to let everybody know that, that those are two completely different things. <laughs> uh, if you're listening to it's this funny podcast. Quite, oh, sorry, it's funny because quite often people always assume schizophrenia is the, the personality or multiple personality disorder. That's a disorder all on its own. It's dissociative identity disorder. Um, it's very rare and... It's, but again, because it has been publicized in the media and has been movies made, people misinterpret 
um, some of his characteristics where bipolar is actually quite common and schizophrenia is one in a hundred. So they're, they're very common disorders. Right. And they just have varying levels of severity. So with that, if, if I, and I, this podcast is going to be going out to our friends down South in the U S and stuff as well. So this may go a little bit off of um, what they're used to, but we all act under the CMHA here in Canada or the Canadian mental health act. When we, trained our officers, um, especially in the health region, we had to go through a process of explaining what forms were. This is what happens if a patient comes in, if it's a form A, a form C, those types of things. And officers have to understand those as well. Is that the way that you guys are doing your instruction out there? Everybody knows what the, the Mental Health Act is. And when they go out to different agencies for their on-the-job training, that's one thing that's specific. They need to know the act. They because there is, they're all basically the same. Where um, if a person is harmful to themselves or somebody else, then they're apprehendable under the Mental Health Act. There are always nuances uh, depending on what province they're they're working in, but that's the basics. And to return them where they're basically picked up or somewhere safe. So there are differences and nuances, but we do train officers in apprehension under the Mental Health Act, for sure. And it is apprehension, as opposed to arresting. Uh, arresting connotates the, the criminal act, where apprehension is taking somebody into custody. Yeah, and that was, I think that's always where the, the misinterpretation came, where it was, yeah, I arrested this guy for, you know, because he was going to hurt himself, and I and you sit there and you're like, um, what? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Because the doctor's like, "What do you mean? What you?" So he's under, like, he's in your custody, and the cops like goes, "No, he's not." And then the doctor's like, "Well, okay, I'm confused, right?" Yeah, so, absolutely, yeah. And and the ironic thing is, uh, when you, you could arrest somebody for say suicidal behavior, and if they're found guilty, the punishment was death. So, so it's kind of ironic, the, our system, but that's all changing. It's been, it's been a work in progress and it still is a work in progress. Some agencies are using a mental health screen to, to help with the articulation of the apprehension, mm-hmm. which is great. Uh, so when they are formed and they take them to, uh, apprehended to, to the hospital, they can more easily articulate in, uh, the medical terms, what they saw, they can actually specify. They are having hallucinations. They were having delusions. They they mentioned they were off their medication. They were having paranoia. They were having pressured speech. They can have appropriate questions, and it helps to articulate uh, once they've been apprehended um, why they're apprehended and what some of the signs and symptoms may have been. I think that's a fantastic point that you just made there, um, and it's about articulating what you observed and the reason being is because kind of to tie back into what we talked about originally, when we talked about use of force, that's always the, the kind of the crux of any use of force investigation, or especially when it gets to the court level and the officer has to explain what happened speaking with expert witnesses. And they say, you know, some officer will get on the stand or a witness will get on the stand and say, you know, I witnessed somebody, I witnessed the suspect assault so-and-so. And all of a sudden the judge leans over and goes, Hey, listen, you, it's not your job to tell us what it was. It's your job to explain what you saw. And that's the difference. The articulation is, is so very important. Um, and actually inquiries now, uh, the Dunphy inquiry in Newfoundland specifically, 
they look at what was the officer was thinking prior to or their Facebook posts about attitudes, where it was the officer condescending about uh, the person that has the mental health issue or the disability prior to arriving at that scene. Because when they arrive at that scene, their mindset speaks to the way they will treat that individual. And that's that's one of the biggest things now is what was the officer's mindset prior to? What kind of language was used used by the officer? Um, conversations that were had in between other officers and the apprehending officer. Um, that's one of the big things. And the other thing is during an inquiry, they will ask the officer, what did you do to de-escalate the situation prior to use of force? And that's where a lot of times, you know, we can talk about rapport building. We can talk about uh, changing the tone or slowing your speech down, lowering your voice. There's all kinds of simple skill sets that can be taught. And when the officer recognizes they've done that, that can be explained in as part of the de-escalation process. I think those are all great tips. With newer officers or recruits that that you have the opportunity to get in front of and kind of mold them into the future officers that they're going to be, do you find that it's easier to to share this type of information and get buy-in on the officer side with new recruits or when you do your in-service training modules? For the most part, new recruits. <laughs> um, a lot of times, experienced officers have been out there. They've seen cases go south. They've seen interactions not work so well. And I think they they have bought into the de-escalation process. But as far as the mindset, um, the apprehension, a lot of times officers don't want to take a chance, don't want to do the, you know, they, they don't want to diagnose. And that's never what the intention is but they always err on the side of caution. So apprehension into the hospital is uh, the best resolve in, in their minds. So changing that mindset, because people that are, have mental health issues, um, possibly having suicidal ideation, but not everybody belongs going to see a doctor, especially when that doctor is not going to admit them and they don't need emergency medical help. Sometimes people need to see get some supports through a counselor or somebody else that's uh, available in the mental health system, perhaps a walk-in clinic, but they don't belong in a hospital. And trying to articulate that is has been one, you know, been a big issue for sure. Um, and they understand the officer's perspective. They don't want to take a chance in having something happen after they've had interactions with people. Absolutely. And I think and one of the things that I wanted to, to kind of bring up, um, because it's my own personal experience in this, area is I don't think a lot of um, obviously the vast majority of officers don't have a, a health uh, a professional health background so mm-hmm. they don't understand that when somebody gets brought in they bring somebody in and to be seen by a doctor which has which is going to be by a psychiatrist that they are basically detaining them or that person is detained by either hospital staff, security, whoever, until that psychiatrist is able to come in and do a proper assessment on them. And that doesn't happen immediately. It can take hours or even up to a day, day and a half, depending on what's happening in the hospital at the time 
And that whole time, that person is basically left feeling that their, you know, their freedom has been completely removed. And that is something that I know I had dealt with and, and the officers that I had worked with have dealt with a lot in the past. Um, and it was just something very difficult all the time, especially when you have people that are brought in and they're simply just confused. They're asking for their parent or they're asking for their, their friend or they just don't know what's happening. Um, and yeah. none of that's articulated or, or, or explained to them. It's, it can be a very difficult situation. Oh, for sure. Uh, and, and difficulty for the officer and the individual that they're, that they've apprehended. Uh, the officer gets very frustrated that you know that med- mental health is not part of policing, but it's been downloaded to police. Because who do you call when there is an issue that nobody else can deal with? You call the police. So they apprehend an escort to the hospital, and they often have to sit there for many hours because there's no beds available to to admit somebody. And often they get discharged once they've been seen by the emergency room doctor, that it's not basically assessed to the point where they need to see a psychiatrist. So a lot of times people don't see psychiatrists. And when it, and they, they may see a GP, an emergency GP. I know here in PEI, we have, um, we've made a lot of progress. They have social workers in the emergency rooms now that can assess an individual, can get what perhaps um, clinic or consults in mental health. Uh, the doctors do an assessment, and they work together more more of a team and uh, make some decisions in that respect. And we can Skype psychiatrists rather than psychiatrists having actually to come to the hospitals, too. So we're making some progress. There, um, There's still a shortage of beds for a variety of reasons, and that can be some problems. And officers still have to wait in the emergency room to get their individual cleared. And that is, uh, it's it's a lot of time spent in the hospital just sitting waiting and that can be very frustrating for an officer. Yeah, absolutely. And and the point that I, the reason why I brought that point up was to kind of dovetail into everything we've talked about today. It's if you're, when you're responding to that call initially and you get there and if you've done your assessment, your pre-assessment prior to arrival mm-hmm. and you get on scene and you take the time and figure out, that okay, this maybe is somebody with mental health issues or something like that. By taking those extra couple minutes to to de-escalate that situation correctly, or maybe reach out and try to find a way, an alternative way to deal with that situation without apprehension. That mm-hmm. in the long run, you may think that you're saving time by apprehending them and bringing them to the hospital, but really you could be you know tying up yourself so that you can't be out on the street attending other calls. Absolutely. And that's that's one part that we do that some training in that what else is available for people? And uh, do they have to do they have to be apprehended? Is there a family member that they can come in contact with? Is there a friend that can take over and get them to a clinic or a walk in clinic or get them to see their GP sometime in the very near future, but not imminently, not right now. When uh, officers apprehend, it's something that has to be done immediately. Right, it's not an apprehension. That, okay, we're going to apprehend you. We'll bring you to a doc- to a clinic in in a few days. Family members, when they're under the care of a family member or um, a partner, perhaps or a colleague, somebody who can take not as much ownership, but can take responsibility of that individual, that frees up the officer and that keeps the individual feeling emotionally safe and secure, as opposed to 
having to go with an officer to the hospital. Uh, if you're having to go to an emergency room with an officer, sometimes they're handcuffed and there's still a huge stigma arriving into the hospital with handcuffs. Uh, they think, oh, we have violence, and they think mental health. Um, and that is something, especially in a small area, that will stick with individuals, and they will get known for it, even though they were in crisis. And we know that vast majority of people at some point in their life will have mental health crisis. So uh, it can happen to any one of us at any time. And knowing that, would we want our, our family members to be treated that way? to be you know, put into the emergency room handcuffed? Or do you want to be dealt with a little bit more subtly that another family member is called or perhaps um, a friend that can assist? And so there's many other ways of dealing with something in, in crisis, mental health or with disabilities of any kind or even just stress-related um, than apprehension right away if there is no imminent need. I think that's a great way to to wrap that up um, into a nice pretty bow with that last explanation <laughs> that you just gave. That was perfect. So is there is there anything that we've talked about today that there are the last few points or um, is there some things that you want people to take away from, from what we've talked about today? One of the biggest things when it comes to mental health issues is the way that the media portrays people is violence. And that when we think about psychosis or we think about schizophrenia, Often what comes to mind is um, mass shootings or um, homicidal maniacs, per se, or psycho, and that's scary. But we do know that the majority, the vast majority of people with mental health issues are not violent, and they're actually more apt to be violent against themselves than they are against somebody else. So that's a really important um, tidbit to keep in mind that people with mental health issues are not necessarily violent and um, able to um, do some of these horrific things that are being portrayed in the media. We all have a propensity for violence. uh, And just because you have a mental illness does not mean you are going to be more violent than anybody else. One of the things um, that we're going to do here with the podcast, and I know I told you this at the beginning, is that Things like we talked about the Hyde Inquiry, um, you talk about Matt's training, all those things we're going to make sure everybody has a link to. So if, if you're listening to this right now, you can check the description of the podcast, uh, go on the show notes page, um, and there's going to be resources there so you guys can take a more in-depth look at what we are talking about here on the podcast. But if somebody wants to lease out, reach out to you, Leslie, where should they come look at you at the Atlantic Police Academy or where can they get a hold of you? The Academy through Holland College. Um... I'm on the website for the Canadian Center of Public Safety Excellence or through Holland College Atlantic Police Academy. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, so, yeah, any, any way you want to get a hold of me, I'd be open to it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Leslie. I really appreciate your time. And I look forward to having you back on. And uh, I know we have a lot more to talk about. Um, so I look forward to those conversations. Awesome. It was great talking. Thanks so much. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for taking the time today to listen to the podcast. I appreciate you being here. I appreciate your support. If you want to get a hold of Leslie, if you have some questions or you just want to reach out, you can get her on her email at lahadfield at hollandcollege.com. That's L-A-H-A-D-F-I-E-L-D at hollandcollege.com. The link will be in the description of the show notes page at thebreakdown.ca 
forward slash 007. I hope you're finding all of this information actionable and useful to you and your agencies. And again, thank you so much for your support. If you feel that you want to hear more of this kind of stuff, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app and check us out at thebreakdown.ca. We have some great gift giveaways going on right now. We're giving away a fully loaded tactical gear bag. We got some holsters. We got some flashlights. We got gloves. Probably going to be over 400 and some dollars worth of equipment for you. And it's going to be completely free. All you got to do is register at thebreakdown.ca. You'll see the links right on our main page. Check us out and make sure to join us next time on the Tactical Breakdown. Stay safe.